The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. This season is often a time of preparation, isn't it? Uh, Separately, when we found out the news for the first time that Emily was pregnant with Ruby, our firstborn, uh, we immediately entered into a season of preparation as well. Uh, It it seemed like everything leading up to Ruby's birth, we were doing something to get ready for her arrival. Whether it was assembling the crib, whether it was decorating the nursery, researching the best parenting techniques, right? Buying all the books, uh, as I am prone to, and, and, and also buying all those first time parent accessories that now as a parent of four, we realize we really didn't need. But as a first time parent, right, you're buying every which thing you can see and you think that you might need. But that was a season, but that season of life was a time of preparation for us. And as I said earlier, no doubt everyone in this room is also preparing for Christmas. You, you may be buying gifts. Hopefully you, you're buying them and you're not waiting. Uh, but hopefully you're buying gifts for family and friends and you're getting your house ready for with all kinds of decorations. Uh, just so you know, at the Gillum house, the tree is up, the lights are on, and the blow-ups in the front yard are plugged in, and they are inflated. We are ready for Christmas. But as we are preparing our homes, I also want to ask you this question this morning. Have you prepared your heart for Christmas? We will learn from our passage this morning as we listen to Mary's Magnificat that the way we prepare him room this Christmas, it's not by baking the sugar cookies, it's not by hanging the garland, and it's not by decorating the Christmas tree with the ornaments. The way we prepare him room this Christmas and every day of our lives is by humbling ourselves before his presence. We will see this morning that the prepared heart is the humble heart. The prepared heart is the humble heart. Now, before we continue, before we look at our text this morning, I want to touch on that very thing which often prevents us from pursuing true humility. And that is what? Pride, right? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this concerning pride. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of it themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. This, of course, is pride. He goes on to say unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, and that it is the complete anti-God state of mind. He continues in the book to talk about how the prideful heart, it's one that is always comparing with each other. It's a heart that's never satisfied. It's one that craves power and, and enjoys feeling superior to other people. And he says this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot look up to see what is above you. Listen, it is very possible for us, for you 
in this room this morning to appear very moral and very religious. And yet still in your heart, you are bursting at the seams with pride. Jesus described the preeminent religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in this way in Matthew 23, when he condemned their hypocrisy by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Continuing on his commentary on pride, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the devil is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up within you the dictatorship of pride. And that the devil is content to see your moral ailments cured if he was allowed in return to give you that spiritual cancer of pride. Do any of you in this room, uh, do, do you resonate maybe if you would be humble? Do you resonate with some of those descriptions of pride? Well, let me help you a little bit. If right now you are thinking, well, I sure wish so-and-so were here because he or she really needs to hear what the pastor's saying right now. Then listen, that is a clear indication of pride within your own heart. May God give us eyes to see this morning the pride that exists within our own heart. None of us are immune. I'm not immune. None of us are immune so that we may repent of our pride and make he and may he make us and may he keep us as a church, a people who are humble before him. Now, before we look at our text at four descriptions of humility, a quick word on what humility is. We talked about what humility is not right. So let us look at what humility is. Well, it's, it's been said before that humility is not, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's not a person who is continually self-deprecating, but humility is instead thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Lewis said that when you find a humble person, he will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. So humility, generally speaking, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. However, our text this morning goes beyond that description. And it shows us that humility, it's not just thinking of yourself less, but it's also, it also involves thinking of your God more. Thinking of yourself less, yes, but thinking of your God more, where your mind, your thoughts are occupied with thoughts of God. In Luke 1, 46 through 56, and that will be our text this morning, if you would like to turn with me. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56, we see four descriptions of a humble heart. We see that the humble heart, it is a rejoicing heart. The humble heart is a reverencing heart. The humble heart is a reversed heart. And a humble heart is a remembering heart. And, and as a side note, before, uh, as we read Mary's Magnificat, in addition to uh, seeking to submit ourselves to God's truth, I also just want to encourage you to enjoy the beauty of God's word, the poetic beauty that we find here in this passage. And I pray that the poetic beauty, that it would lead us to see the beauty of Christ this morning. Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and read Mark, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And this is after Mary had visited with Elizabeth, her cousin. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Well, Father, this morning we we do pray that we would prepare room for your son. Uh, we pray this morning that that as we did in singing, we will do so now in through the preaching of your word that we would come and adore him. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come now, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Reveal to us that the, the pride that exists within our hearts so that it may that you may lead us to joyful repentance. Uh, we pray, come now, in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Amen. First, we see that the humble heart is a rejoicing heart. Look at me with what Mary says in verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, there, there are two ways we can magnify something, right? One, one way we magnify is by using a magnifying glass or a microscope. We make something small appear to be bigger for us. That's, that's one way we can magnify something. Another way we magnify something is by taking something that is unspeakably great and bringing it into view so that we can see. And, and, that, and that carries the idea of, of a telescope. That's what a telescope does for us, right? Well, that, that's the point that Mary is saying here, to magnify the Lord is to see his greatness and his glory and for it to come into view for us and then in response to worship him in light of that. In verses 46 through 47, they are full of worship. And Jesus taught us that there are two ways we worship, right? There are two ways. We worship first in spirit. One theologian of old said it this way, without the heart, it is no worship. We may truly be said to worship God even though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship God if we lack sincerity. A heart that is cluttered with sin is a heart that is restrained. It's kept from true worship. And so to worship in spirit then means that we must be regularly repenting of sin in our heart and that we must be regularly resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are to worship in spirit as Mary did here. But also we are to worship in truth, Jesus taught us. And so though true worship is to be sincere, it must also be grounded in truth. Sincere worship that is not shaped by truth is in fact idolatry, right? We are worshiping a God that we fashion to our own likeness. True worship then, it flows from meditation on truth of God's word and on meditating on his gospel, what he has done for us to save us from our sins. David would say it this way in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And this is why our daily Bible reading time and, and the preaching of God's word weekly, it's not intended only to be intellectual, to, to stay in our mind. 
We should engage the mind in our study, but in our engagement of the mind, it should enliven our souls to worship Jesus. Our meditation on the word of God should lead us to worship the God of the word. And you see that in our text. Because the Magnificat, which it's a Latin word, which means magnify. The Magnificat of Mary, it flowed from her meditation on various Old Testament passages. It echoes Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 when God promises Hannah, the barren one, a son. It echoes prayers and songs of worship from the Psalms. And that's why we read our call to worship this morning was Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. Let the humble hear and be glad. Mary's Magnificat, it echoes statements from Leah in, in Genesis 30 and other places of the Old Testament. Her song of praise to God was shaped by the word of God. God's word saturated Mary's being. Right, which is incredible to think about when you consider that she didn't have her own personal scroll of the Old Testament. She remembered God's word. She was able to recall God's word because she intentionally meditated on his word. And as Jesus would say in Matthew 12, from the overflow of her heart then, her mouth spoke of praise to God. How much more then should we who have a personal copy of God's word devote ourselves to meditating on his word? So one way we prepare him room this Christmas season is by meditating on his word. Now, before we move on from this point, I think it's helpful to to define and to understand what meditation means, because there's a lot of talk in our world today about meditation. There there are apps you can get on your phone to help you meditate. Uh, there, there, There are different programs Uh, But what we're talking about here is not an Eastern religion style of meditation where you try to just empty yourself of everything. You try to declutter yourself of, of what's going on around you. Rather, biblically, we are talking about a meditation that that where we quiet ourselves before God's word, where we slow down to think and to pray through his word. And we ask the Holy Spirit to show us his truth. Where we, where we try to seek out observations from the text. And then we let those observations lead us to truth about God and his gospel. And then where we pray those truths back to God. And then we try to live in light of that truth. That's what it means to biblically meditate on God's word. It involves our entire being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and, and maybe an example, uh, when, when you go to a, a steakhouse, whether uh, Texas Day Brazil or... Uh, 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 blanking on the others, uh, mahogany. There's another one. I've not, not been yet. Um, but when you go to those steakhouses and you get a nice cut of steak, you get that filet mignon. Do you try to eat it as quickly as possible? No, you take it one bite at a time. You try to savor. You try to enjoy. You try to ruminate on it. You want. You want it. You want to it to linger a little bit for you. That that's the idea of meditating on God's word. You want God's word to linger within you to, to, to ruminate. You want to ruminate on God's word and you want it ultimately to change you. The way we prepare ourselves to magnify the Lord is by meditating on his word. Notice also with me what Mary says. She says, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. And so continuing on her use of the old Testament, uh, notice the similarities with what Mary says to Habakkuk 3.18, where it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
You hear those echoes. You hear those echoes. And that, that verb rejoice in verse 47, it literally means to leap for joy, to show one's joy by leaping or skipping. And it's an ecstatic joy that's often accompanied with song and dance. So one way we can understand what Mary is saying here is this. She, she says, my spirit, it can't contain the overflowing joy that I have in God, my Savior. And this is what it means to exult in, to, in the Lord, to rejoice in him. So I just want to ask you again this morning, how is your heart? Are you preparing him room? Are you rejoicing in God, your Savior? Are you leaping with overflowing joy in what he has done for you? Are you rejoicing in Christ and in his saving work on the cross? Or are you like I have been prone to this Christmas season? Have you been so caught up in preparing for the Christmas holiday that you've neglected to prepare your heart to worship your Savior? But notice another point about the humble heart that rejoices. And that is the rejoicing heart is a redeemed heart. See how Mary describes the God that she rejoices in. She doesn't say, I rejoice in God, my lawgiver, or I rejoice in God, my cosmic killjoy, as many people in our world think of God to be, or I rejoice in God, my distant deity. No, our text says that Mary rejoiced in God, her savior. The only way our hearts can rejoice in truth and in spirit is if we have been given new hearts that are able to do so. God created us to worship him. Sin corrupted that original design. And so in order to fulfill our original design, then we don't need reformation. We don't need behavioral change. We need regeneration. We need to be made new. We don't need reformation in our hearts. We need regeneration. We need to be made new. And that's the promise of the gospel that Jesus, he didn't come to this earth to give us profound moral and ethical teachings. And though, though he did do that, he came to bear the punishment for your sin, for my sin on the cross. He came to take our sin upon his shoulders to make atonement for our sin that we could be forgiven and that we could be given brand new life. So we could be given a new heart that can rejoice him in spirit Rejoice in him in spirit and in truth. Listen, the goal of every religion in our world is to restrain your immorality and to regulate your behavior. But the goal of Christianity is the complete opposite. The goal of Christianity, it's not to restrain your immorality, but it's to remove your immorality by giving you a new heart. It's not to regulate your behavior, but it's to renew, to make anew the affections within your heart. The religions of the world, they're an outside-in religion. They try to change you, your behavior, which leads to maybe some, some change in your heart. But Christianity, Christianity is the complete opposite. It's not an outside-in religion. It's an inside out. We are transformed within that leads to obedience to Jesus in our life. That, that, that's why when we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, the Bible says that we experience the new birth. We are born again. Now, is this not cause to rejoice in God, our salvation? 
for he has made us alive. He has given us a new heart and he has united us to Jesus Christ. Before we move to our second point, notice the pronoun Mary uses. God, my savior. I just, I just want to ask you this morning, can that describe you? Do you know him in such a way that you can say he is God, my savior? Listen, the true living God, the maker of heaven and earth, he's not some distant deity. He's not a subject to be studied. He's not a list of abstract truths that we adhere to or believe. He's not a statement of beliefs. No, the one true living God, he is personal and he is a relational God. And this is the astounding claim of Christianity, that through faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with God can be restored and we are able now to personally, personally and relationally know the living God of the universe. He is our God. He is a knowable God. And look at what Mary says next, that our God, he is an involved God. She says this, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That, that, that word, that verb looked, it means that the Lord gives notice to Mary. His eye is on her. He intentionally, attent- attentively watches her because she has humbled himself before the Lord. So do you want God's grace to overflow in your life? I hope so. Then humble yourself before him. James 4, 6 puts it this way, that the Lord, that God opposes the proud, but he what? He gives grace to the humble. And and, and so notice that strong language, that God opposes the proud, And so if this morning, as the Bible would call it, if you are a a a stiff-necked person, I get that out of my mouth, a stiff-necked person, if you are refusing to humble yourself before the Lord, what does the Bible say? That God is against you. Isn't that a fearful thing? It's better to humble yourself before the Lord than to be humbled by him. Or Jesus would put it this way in Matthew 21. It's better to fall onto the rock and be broken than for the stone to fall on you and you be crushed. Listen, humble yourself before the Lord. I invite you, come to him through repentance and faith for he will receive you. Secondly, we see that the humble heart, it's a reverencing heart. Verses 48 through 50. Notice why Mary says that all generations will call her blessed. Again, it's not because she is great, but it's because Mary's God is great and that by his grace, he would do great things for her. Indeed, God has chosen that through her, the Messiah, God's promised king to save his people, that that through Mary, the son of God would enter into the world. And, and, And you know how the prideful in heart, what they say, right? Look how blessed I am because of what I have done. Look at what I have. Look at what my hands have made for myself. And again, before we point the finger to others, let, let, let's, let's listen to our own hearts this morning. But it's the humble who says, look how blessed I am, not because of what I have done, but it's because of what God has done in me and through me. It's all owing to his grace. Listen, church, it's good for us to remember that we are a blessed people. 
In a day and age where discontentment and envy and jealousy run rampant, it does the heart good for us to remember that we are blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and for us as a church. Has the Lord brought you back into a right relationship with God? He who is mighty has done great things for me. Has the Lord Jesus made you a new creation? He who is mighty has done great things for me. Has he paid with his blood the price of your adoption into the family of God? He who is mighty has done great things for me. And has he given you the promise of eternal life to enjoy his presence for all eternity? He who is mighty has done great things for me. Listen, church, we are a blessed people because by his grace, we have been changed by the power of the gospel And so we say along with Mary, oh, holy is his name. We are blessed, not because of the house we own or the car we drive or the clothes we wear, the job we work or we don't. Contrary to the prosperity heresy that's prevalent today. No, we are a blessed people because our God has come to us and because Emmanuel has lived among us and because the sovereign son of of God. He hung cursed on the cross in our place, bearing our shame, our guilt, that we might become righteous sons and daughters of the living God. We are a blessed people. And if you don't yet know Christ this morning, if you haven't been changed by the power of the gospel, If you haven't received the blessing of salvation, then listen to what Mary says next in verse 50. She says this, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Listen, God's mercy, it's not contingent on your works. It's freely offered to all who would recognize him as holy and who repent of their sin, trust in him as their savior and who receive his free gift of eternal life. The humble heart, It's a reverencing heart. Thirdly, we see that the humble heart, it's a reversed heart. Verses 51 through 53. Mary says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Now, we don't know exactly what what Mary had in mind when she wrote that, but in verse 51, she may have been thinking of the Tower of Babel, where in their pride, the people, they said, let's let's build a tower for us to get to heaven. We can get ourselves to heaven by our own merit. And then what does the Lord do? He scatters them. He humbles them. and, and, And it's the birth of the languages in our world. He confuses them. So maybe that's what she was thinking of in verse 51. And in verse 52, she may have had in mind King Nebuchadnezzar, who when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He has brought down the mighty. King Nebuchadnezzar experienced firsthand that the Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. Whatever Mary may have had in mind when singing these two verses, she introduces the principle of the paradox of God's kingdom, that it's the humble who are honored. It's the lowly who are exalted. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the last 
who will be first. It's the least who will be the greatest. It's those who mourn who will be comforted. And it's those who are poor in spirit who will be rich with God's grace. This is the paradox of God's kingdom. And notice how the Apostle Paul would put it. He said, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human might boast in the presence of God. If God has saved you, then it's his work that has done it within you. I know, I know there's a temptation sometimes, right? When we look at this, we think that that sounds good, but it doesn't seem to be true in our world today. Why are the ones who deny God often the most successful and prosperous? Have you ever thought that? I know I have. How is that right? Why are they material blessed in such a way that maybe I am not, if I'm following the Lord faithfully? Well, this is where Psalm 37 comes in to help us, where, where David says, fret not your, yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they soon will fade away like the grass. Fret not over yourself, the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance peace. Listen, the day of the Lord is coming. His judgment is coming and it is coming soon. And so I just wanted to say, if you're counted among the prideful, repent before it's too late. Trust in Jesus as your savior, lest you fall into the hands of an angry God. And Psalm 37 tells us that instead of fretting over the prosperity of the wicked, we are instead to trust in the Lord and do good, to dwell in the land and to befriend faithfulness, to delight ourselves in the Lord. And he will give us the desires of our heart to commit our way to him, to trust in him and to trust that he will act and that he will bring forth our righteousness as the light and his justice as the new day. Listen, if we have hope only in this lifetime, what did Paul say? Let's eat, let's drink, Let's, let's be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's live for this world if our hope is only found in this world. But we believe Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and that all will, held be, will be held accountable before him and that he will reward the righteous. Jesus would put it this way. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will what? He'll save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, this is the paradox of God's kingdom. Jim Elliot, the great missionary, phrased it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Lord, he scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty and the exalted. He empties the rich but he exalts those before his presence of those who are of humble estate and he fills the hungry with good things. The humble heart, it is a reversed heart. And finally, the humble heart, it's a remembering heart. Mary ends her song of praise by remembering the covenantal 
faithfulness of God to his people. Now for hundreds of years, and especially during those 430 years of silence between the Old Testament, the the last prophet, and the coming of Christ, no doubt God's people wondered, will God fulfill his promise to his people? And again, maybe you're wondering that right now. God God doesn't seem to be faithful to his promise in my life right now. But listen, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. For in the fullness of time, at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. Listen, God will fulfill all of his promises for his people. And and we know that because he sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. He has helped his servant Israel. He has remembered his mercy and he has fulfilled his covenant he made to Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. If he has done this, he will be faithful for us. And so the way we continue in humility is by daily remembering what Christ has done for us. That's not by our own efforts, but it's solely by the merit of Jesus Christ that we find favor with God. It's all due and owing to his grace. The humble heart, it's a rejoicing heart. It's a reverencing heart. It's a reversed heart. And it is a remembering heart. And so in closing, I want to ask and encourage you this week to prepare your hearts for Christmas, to prepare him room, to to resist a sentimentalized version of baby Jesus. And to rejoice in, to reverence, and to remember that God eternal, he was born as a helpless child. And that he was born to die to redeem us from our sins. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Well, now we are going to enter into uh, the next part of our service, which is the Lord's Supper. So we're not going to play music right now. We're not going to have a formal invitation. Instead, after I pray, we're going to enter into about a minute of silent response to the Lord. And so to help you with that time, I I want to ask you, in light of the preached word and in light of God's holiness, how is your heart? Has the Lord revealed areas of pride within you? I pray he has. He did with me in preparing this sermon. If so, enter into the joy of repentance. Ask him for his forgiveness. Maybe are you harboring bitterness or do you, have you failed to forgive one of your brothers or sisters in this room? Well, then use this time to get out of your seat, to humble yourself and to reconcile. However the Lord is working in your heart, respond to him now. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.